0: listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Tom Griscom, the former executive editor and publisher of the Chattanooga Times Free Press. Prior to his newspaper days, Tom was in the political arena as press secretary and close advisor to Tennessee's United States Senator, Howard Baker. When Senator Baker joined the Reagan administration as chief of staff, Tom was brought on to serve as White House communications director. Tom, welcome to my morning cup. Before we talk about your love of Chattanooga, politics, and journalism, let me ask, what's in your morning cup?
1: Well, I brought me a nice cup of cold water this morning.
0: It's a good way to start the morning. Do you ever have anything
1: else? In the morning? Yeah. Nice cup of coffee. Black. Just one cup, though. Just one. gets me going. Now, as the day goes on, you'll probably find I'll have a decaf here or there. Because I've learned as you get older, caffeine doesn't help you later in the day.
0: No, actually, I'm decaf all the time. I will have uh, caffeinated if I'm in a restaurant and they don't have something brewed. For whatever reason, they don't ever have a pot of decaf ready.
1: There's a, won't tell you which one it is, but we kept going in to do the same thing. My wife and I said, we'd like a cup of decaf after dinner. said, well, let me go check the machine. And they come back and say, the machine is broken. And I looked (laughs) at Mary and I said, so there's a different machine to make decaf than regular coffee? I just thought you sort of opened up the pack. Poured the coffee grinds in turned on the water and it worked but it was became hilarious so when we went back to this restaurant every time we'd ask them
0: so is the machine fixed yet <laughs> sounds like the mcdonald's ice cream machine oh gosh yes, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> well tom i really appreciate you coming in um, i had the good fortune uh gosh it's been 23 years ago now of meeting you And uh, you have always been very generous with your time, and you mean so much to Chattanooga. I would like to talk about your career path. I know you went to the University of Chattanooga, which it was at the time. It wasn't the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. Am I correct about that?
1: We went to the last two years of UC and graduated in the second class from UTC.
0: So you graduated from UTC with what degree? English degree, because at that point, there
1: was no journalism, communication courses. So you wanted to get what, in my mind, whatever made sense, and that was a BA in English, because you need to know how to put a thought together, write, tell it, whatever, and English did that. And there's part of me today that says, I wish we'd stayed there, but the communication programs become more of a professional technical course. And I think the English part was such a great grounding in really understanding how thoughts are put together, how you communicate them, and then being able to interpret uh, what is something that was written centuries ago in many cases.
0: I was going to ask you about that because one of my frustrations when I was hiring people was how ill-prepared the candidates were in communicating their message, whether it was verbal, written, whether it was in their presentation skills. And I felt much like you that that's one of the things that really missed out on by specializing.
1: Mike, we did a writing test and I've kept it going. Some people think I'm so yesterday, but wait a second. You want a job to be able to share information with somebody else out there who has at best a surface level of knowledge about what you're talking about. And it all starts with being able to write a thought down. Then I can take it and tell it. But number of people who said, well, nobody told me I was going to have to do a writing test. I said, well, what do you think you're going to be doing every day? Yeah. Now, as you know, what evolved over the years is it starts with those words, but now it's what we're doing right now, a podcast. It's a television interview. It's posting on a website or Instagram or whatever, but it also is still that printed word. That's where it begins. And I was sat there and just sort of was, trying to figure out why did you choose this profession? Because (laughs) you're trying to share with somebody who has, I said, a surface level knowledge at best, a thought, something they ought to consider, information, and it starts with being able to put those words on something, whether it's a laptop, a piece of paper. I still use paper. I like that to edit,
0: Mm -hmm. but it starts that way a few years ago I was on the board of visitors for the University of Tennessee's College of Communication and Information and my dad was a great example of this what the hell are you going to do with a PR degree because it is not traditional business and my response to him and to parents who would ask those type questions is you can't have a stronger base than if you learn to communicate
1: let's say you've got you're a great business student and you can figure out these numbers and stuff how do I share that information with somebody like me who's not as adept at numbers? It's by communicating. Yeah. I can learn this level of detail. But now if I know how to take that and communicate it, that's a real added skill to
0: have. Yeah, most of the technical stuff could be taught. Yeah. So when you came out of uh, UTC, did you go directly to work for the newspaper as a reporter? I see that you were in the Army, and I did not know that. Yeah, here's what I
1: did. So in college— I did weekend sports. This is great. Weekend sports for the Chattanooga Times. And so you would go in and you'd get phone calls from all over this region. This is a time, and I think you'll remember what I'm getting ready to say, You know, where you put in who ran the touchdowns mm-hmm. and all that. All the stats. And then two or three sentences would get cut out, put on a refrigerator or in a scrapbook, something like this. So you were writing, taking these calls and writing up this little piece of agate little story that go on the sports page on a Saturday. And so that started it. I'd been a high school newspaper editor uh, at Brainerd High School. So when I graduated, I went to work in the afternoon for the free press. But yes, during the time I was in school, it was Vietnam War. Yeah. Yeah, the lottery was going on. I was part of ROTC and graduated with a a commission, second lieutenant, and went to work but knew that probably within the first year – I was going to be called to active duty, which happened. And uh, this is where I'm sort of like George W. Bush. You may remember the campaign. People criticized him because he went to the Air National Guard, I think it was, in Texas. And, oh, my gosh. Well, I'm one of those who, when you went in, President Nixon was scaling back first second lieutenants in Vietnam. And uh, so you had this choice. If you wanted to stay in the military, then you did a two-year it's going to be a hardship tour to Korea, South Korea. And it's ironic that years later, we had a daughter who taught English there for 10 years. And I've been to DMZ a couple of times. But I had no intention of making the military my career. So you could do six months active and eight years reserve. And that's what I did. And so I was gone for six months, went to Indianapolis, Indiana, you know, in the side of the military that dealt with communication information, and then came back and continued then as a reporter at the free press.
0: So what did the military give you that helped you do your job for the free press better?
1: Well, it told me where I thought I was a physically fit person. And no, I, I, every day I need to get up and do some exercise because you go there and they put you through PTPC, which is their physical training course. And after the first week, I told Marion, I said, okay, give me a push. Because my legs were so sore. I said, go down the stairs and I better not stop because, (laughs) but then coming back up, this is true. I was so sore. I was on hands and knees to crawl back up the stairs. (laughs) Uh, So it said, keep yourself fit. The other part, though, was interesting. There were a couple of other officers in my class whose fathers were career military. And I saw them thinking they had some kind of special privilege. And the answer was, no, you didn't. What you had was a history that was provided to you by a father. But you have to earn your own way. So just because you had that door opener, you're just like me. You're in the same class that I'm in doing the same things, and you're not put on some pedestal. And I thought about that in terms of when you work, You can sit here and worry about, I think they're being given special consideration. Or you can say, we're all starting at the same level. Now, they may have had one step better than I had just because of history or whatever. But guess what? When we start the day, we're equal.
0: And I think that's an important point, not just for the military, but in business. It's that institutional knowledge that someone grew up around. So use the example of entrepreneurship. If someone's parent was an entrepreneur, they grew up in that atmosphere and absorbed those things as opposed to someone who didn't and really doesn't know where to start. They have this institutional knowledge through observation. And I'll give one more quick
1: example. So I'd had a reporter years later when I came back, was editor and publisher of the Times Free Press who came in one day and wanted to know, how do I get your job? And I said, well, let me share with you where I started, I wrote obituaries. Now, we're at a point in time where funeral homes would put them together, or you could write your own. I mean, we actually went out and covered a couple of funerals because the, the write up was so fascinating. There was this person who was a hang glider down in Lookout Valley, and we read the obituary. So we went to this celebration of life and covered it. But it said, if you are writing the last three sentences about somebody's life, You've got to sum up whatever period of time they were here in three sentences. And you've got to be accurate because, again, I'll go back. I said this earlier. These are still things that got cut out and saved. If I'm writing the last words about this person and I make a mistake, whether it's a a grammatical mistake, spelling mistake, I don't have a chance to go back and correct it. And I said, it teaches you to really care about the details, to really spend your time and not rush. You can be on a deadline, but you can still pause, go back, look at it, and then send what you feel is your best work. And it may be three sentences, but there's somebody out there or family out there that for them, it really matters. And, you know, and just getting that sense of what is handed to you as a writer, At a newspaper, and you're writing an obituary.
0: It really matters. And it kind of goes back to the old journalism axiom of get it right instead of first. The KISS principle. Yes, keep (laughs) it simple, stupid. (laughs) That's That's right. So you're a reporter at the Free Press. Mm -hmm. How long before you connected with Senator Baker?
1: Well, I'd connected with Senator Baker post-Free Press. As I started general assignment reporter, then I covered the county government. At that point, county government was both the court's and the political side. And that was a great beat because there was so much that really happened at this level, the local level. And then that morphed into being the political writer for the free press. So I started writing a column every week, covered the legislature. When they were in session, we'd leave here on a Monday and come back either Thursday night or Friday morning. So I stayed in Nashville four or five months, driving back and forth. In addition to covering state politics, You would cover the congressman here and then cover the United States senators. So that's how I met Senator Baker is we went to Washington and did a whole set of stories on our representatives in Washington. I wrote these, took a photographer with me and met him. Or when he would come in here and do news conferences, I'd show up. It was great to see him. I had no clue that Senator Baker really even would know my name other than you know, when he shows up in Chattanooga or at some other events in Tennessee, I might be there.
0: So you're doing your job. Right. And you're interacting with him. How did it come about that you went to work for Senator Becker and what year was that?
1: So I had decided that uh, I could have stayed at the Free Press, but I probably had a pretty good idea of what I'd be doing 30 years later because uh, a family-owned newspaper, which is fine. And you were going to butt up against the family. And I was not part of the family. And uh, writing politics was great, but there are other things I wanted to do. So I went to work in a political campaign and uh, got a phone call from Senator Baker's assistant. This is 1978. And Senator Baker had just voted for the Panama Canal, put it together, voted for it.
0: Not a popular decision at that time, particularly in Tennessee. That's
1: right. And uh, so I get a call from Doris Lovett, his assistant, says, Senator Baker would like to talk with you. Can you come to Huntsville, Tennessee? And at that point, Huntsville was like driving through the country because you didn't have the interstate going up like we do now in Knoxville and cut over. And so I drove to his office, his law office in Huntsville, and go in, and he's on the phone. Doris says he'll be with you in a minute. She says, he's off, go in. So I went in his office and sat down like we're sitting here, across from each other. And we're just chatting. And and, and Senator Baker at that point was talked about and did end up running for president. And so he turned to me and said, is there anything you want to ask me? And I said, "Uh, yes, sir, there is. I said, Senator, you've got all of these people that you know in Washington that I know would love to go to work for you. Why me? And he gets up and he walks around. He says, stand up. So I did and he stood nose to nose with me and said, young man, because I can see eye to eye on the issues with you, meaning I was 5'6". I am. He was 5'6 and a half, And his <laughs> press secretary at that point was a big person named Ron McMahon, who was a tall, bulky guy, and it made Senator Baker look smaller. So when I got home, I told
0: and she said, well, did you
1: find out why he wanted you? I said, yes, because I'm short.
0: <laughs> That's a great story. So he hires you based on height. Correct. But you end up being a trusted aide. Talk a little bit about that development of that relationship and how you earned his trust and, and really how you built that relationship into what it was.
1: So in this new job, and here's what I'm told by Ron McMahon, he said, I want you to understand a lot of people have tried this job and they're no longer here. And I was oh my gosh. I'm this young reporter trying to figure this out. But what it took over time, I mean, at the end, when all this was said and done, Senator Baker, I think, as you know, was the best mentor I still have, even though he's passed away. But it was being yourself, because he was, is being able to listen. Uh, When he asked you something, if you didn't know, you said it. But if you could had something, share it. But you also knew when to be quiet and let him sort of think but you also knew when he was looking for something, how to work with him to get things done that need to be done. I mean, he left the Senate. He said, Tommy, here's what's going to happen. He said, I'm going to be in some holiday inn someplace in Iowa. And I'm going to wake up and I'm going to look around and try to figure out where am I? <laughs> and I'm going to call the room next door thinking you're there. Then I'm going to realize, oh, I'm on my own. And, I mean, it was a funny story to tell, but it was very reflective of of Senator Baker. Not that he couldn't be self-sufficient. He could. But he was at a point where what I did, what McMahon did before me, was to really be somebody that he had confidence in and was comfortable with so he could think about it and really focus on the issues that really made a difference for him. And he trusted, we I mean, he had the no, this is where the no surprise rule came from. He said, I trust you, it's the reason I hired you, and I'm going to give you all this latitude to do your job. But the one thing I want to make sure is when that Washington Post hits the front door of my house in D.C., I don't want to open up the front page and find something there you didn't tell me about. That makes sense because if there's a level of trust you want to have, That level of trust goes a long way, but you got, if something doesn't work right, you got to be just as honest in saying, I may have made a mistake as you are when you know I hit this one out. Boy, this is a great one.
0: That's such an important rule, whether it's politics or business, and if you're working with your boss, that no surprises. Well, you know, Mike, you have to remember what I said yesterday,
1: today, because you, you just keep plowing the ground, and, yeah. and not too many people are adept at remembering <laughs> what is it I said yesterday, and, and then that's when you end up tripping up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One thing you mentioned about Senator Baker, and I'll move on from that, him talking about leaving the Senate and just being in a hotel room, sounds like he had a pretty good grasp on who he was, not entrapped with the titles and the office, but more of, I'm just Howard Baker, He talked about Huntsville, Tennessee as the center
1: of the universe. I got asked and was pleased I got asked to write the last words about Senator Baker, his obituary. And I made sure that line was in there because for him, he would go home on a Friday after a tough week in Washington. And by Saturday morning, he was sort of back in who he was. And here he is, he's the majority leader of the United States Senate or the chief of staff of the president of the United States. He'd get in his car, drive down this little gravel road to where his law office was, and everybody would see him. It was like they called him Henry, and it was no trappings. He was nothing special in Huntsville. And that really mattered for him. Yeah. And we knew when it was time for him to go home. After a couple of hard weeks, we said, we need to schedule him back in Tennessee because that's impact it had on him. But yes, he always said he was comfortable in his own skin, and there's no doubt about it.
0: What did that mentorship mean to you, and why are mentorships important? Well, I'd had
1: George Connor, who was a professor and an executive assistant to the chancellor at UTC. My great aunt had mentored him, so he be- became a mentor for me. He was the one that said, you need to go figure out how to type. I mean, I did the two-finger model. <laughs> While I'm working as a student assistant during the summer, he sent me over to typing classes at the university. But also, I had never really used a ballpoint pen. And I'm left-handed, and I'm one of those left-handers who writes upside down. I uh, went to school at the time where they told you, everybody turned their paper like a right-handed person. So I'd end up with the, the mess <laughs> on my hand, whether it was a pencil or a pen. But particularly if it's an ink pen, you know, you'd smear it. So he said, I need to teach you how to use a ballpoint pen because he used one all the time. So when you sign something or use a pen like this, you put this blotter on it, things like that. And Senator Baker, I mean, I had a great family, but Senator Baker was like a second father. The twins we had, Mike, were premature. and This is back in the 80s, and it's nothing like it is now. And I'm going to digress one sec. We did a story at the Times Free Press about nick units. And the editor driving the story was all excited, came to me, and I said, wait a minute, unless you've experienced this, I said, Mary and I did. We sat there, and we watched premature twins, and one of them didn't make it. I said, we're lucky ours did. But unless you've been there, there's a whole side to this story about a parent and asking yourself, did I do something wrong? Mm -hmm. And I said, so this isn't something to celebrate It's a great story, but please back up just a little bit. So our twins get born, and here shows up the Majority Leader of the United States Senate, puts on all the gowns and stuff. He's got his camera, and he took the first pictures, which we've still got.
0: Wow, what a treasure.
1: And we've shared them with our twins, who are now grown and doing well, for them to share, particularly Patty, with her children, saying, this was your mommy, and these pictures, though, were taken— by Howard Baker. And let me tell you who Senator Baker was and the relationship because he cared as much about our children as he did. And and there was a part of him that understood the things that I was doing for him because we were traveling about six months out of the year. He would find ways to make sure our family was part of what he was doing. And so it's those kind of touches that a lot of people don't think about that made it very special and very different, and even in the later years, as he, uh, as his health declined, I went to Huntsville one day, and Senator Baker was really frustrated at the Baker Center, and now it's getting ready to finally have a school, which is what he wanted, and he was really disappointed. He said, you know, I don't think they're doing what we ought to I'm going to go over there once a week and teach a class. Well, he was not at the point where he should do it, but I got asked, would I come up and have the conversation with him and, and help him understand why that was not what he you ought to do?
0: It's a hard conversation. Yes.
1: But the relationship was there. I sort of knew how to talk to him because he knew inside. I wasn't doing this because I didn't think he was capable or whatever. I was doing it because I cared about him and how people thought about him and what people ought to think about him, and that we will take care of this problem and let us, Senator, do what you've done for many of us, and that is you've been there for us. We'll be there for you. And that's why I say, I think today, as we're getting ready to see this school open as part of the Baker Center, Senator Baker's up there smiling down saying, well, you finally did it. (laughs) You got it done. You told me you were going to do it. And uh, that's part of that relationship. There's so many pieces to it, Mike, that, uh, as I said, I still can remember things today that he said, taught me, helped me figure through, think through. He would always say, you can come and ask me anything. And I'll give you the best advice I can, but I'm not going to make the decision for you. You need to decide for yourself because if you don't and something goes wrong, doesn't go the way you want it to, I don't want you to blame me. You need to look at it and go back and figure out, what did I miss? Did I cloud my judgment because I thought this was the best thing out there and, and didn't really think it through? So I will be your
0: counselor, your advisor. We can talk about this, but you have to make the final decision. And that, to such great advice, and I know we try and do that with our kids, but in business too. And you bring up the excellent point of, I can't make this decision for you. I can counsel you, but you've got to make this decision because you got to live with this decision. And that's for these
1: young reporters at the newspaper. They'd come in and say, I've got this great opportunity. So what should I do? And I would tell them that same story. I said, get your piece of paper, put a line down the middle of it on one side, why you ought to do it on the other side, why you shouldn't. And you can talk
0: to me. I will share experiences, whatever, but I'm not going to make the decision. I do have one more question about Senator Baker for you, and it's almost more of a clarification. He leaves the Senate thinking about running for president, and I think if I know the story correctly, he's on vacation in Florida, gets a call. We need you to come be chief of staff. You go with him to the White House as director of communications. But one of the stories that's associated with you is the famous line, tear down this wall. Can you tell that a bit? Yes. You learn a lot about yourself and the people around you
1: and some of the people that you know have much more experience than you do and how they make their own judgments. So all that's tied into this. But I'm going to try to give you the cliff Notes version so you got it real quick. We sent an advanced team over to Germany. And when they came back, they shared with us dinner stories with families that they had met in West Berlin that said, at the end of the day, what we would like to have is our families back together because it's not difficult to get through the checkpoint, but coming back's really hard. And so that's the genesis of all this. We're sitting down talking about it, and and the speechwriters also reported into me at the White House. And so we had this discussion, and at one point they said, well, maybe President Reagan ought to be like, President Kennedy had been, where he used German. He said, no, 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 that's not Ronald Reagan. <laughs> uh, and so all this stuff's thrown around. In the general tone, we know it was going to be there. But the key piece was came from that story. So I had a page and a half that was put together that was the lead in, lead out, that had this line there. Because we need to find out, how the president would feel about it. The State Department was already opposed to it. Cohen Powell, who was leading their efforts in the White House, told me he was not for this. Senator Baker initially was not either. But he went with me. We walked down uh, to the old office. Uh, we, our offices were in the west wing of the White House. I had, by the way, I had the office that H.R. Haldeman had when he worked for Nixon, had no windows. <laughs> and I have to tell you, the first day in there, I did look underneath the tables. For, <laughs> I was going to say, did you have it checked? <laughs> I didn't find any. But um, but we walked down and handed President Reagan, there's three of us in the Oval Office, President, Senator Baker, and myself, and handed him this piece of paper, told him what it was, told him why we were there. He read it one time. After he finished, there was never any question in my mind that this is what needed to be in the speech. We went back and forth over the next several months. Uh, State Department kept trying to, George Shultz kept trying to knock it out, all, all this. So probably three or four additional times I would go back just to make sure, because you got Secretary of State doing that, and they're talking to the President, trying to convince him not to do this. So I just want to make sure. And um, the last attempt to take it out was right before we left Finland to go in to Berlin, to deliver it. I mean, Schultz took one last shot that morning that this was going to happen. And before we went on the trip, he comes over to see Senator Baker in his office, and Senator Baker buzzes me to come down. And he says, Tommy, the Secretary of State wants to talk to you. And so George Schultz just lays into it. But here's what's important. He said, young man, and at that point, Mike, I still was, he said, young man, I have spent eight years of my life, my life, not the president's, his, to normalize relationships with the Soviet Union, and you're going to mess it up with this speech. And I looked at him, and and George Shultz is this big guy. He'd been around since Nixon. I mean, he's a real player. And I'm this young guy who had worked for Howard Baker and been a reporter in Tennessee, as we've talked about, and I'm now in the White House. And I said, Mr. Secretary, I have all the respect in the world for you, but I'm going to disagree with you. Because I heard the president say this for the first time. And from that moment on, my commitment has been to make sure this is part of what he delivers. This is what people are going to remember. Well, Schultz was happy he left. That's why he made the last run at it. And, you know, the rest of it, because President Reagan delivered Senator Baker toward the end, changed his mind. He agreed. Years later, I'm on a Chamber of Commerce trip here in Chattanooga and we're all going over to Volkswagen to try to get the second car. And uh, we're in Berlin. Uh, we go over to, to the where the Brandenburg Gate is. The first time i had been back since the speech. And Mary and I are walking around, and we see the plaque that's got the words on it, things like this. And there's a, a placeholder in the middle of the street where the stand actually was. And so one of the people on the trip comes over and says, hey, would you come over and talk to this tour guide? We told her about your role in the speech. Yes. So I go over there, and she said, "You know, I understand that you you were involved." As in I said, yeah, I had a role in it. Yes. And she tells me the same story that I'd heard when these words were put together and put on that paper. Exactly the same. She starts crying, and she says, "My family got put back together because of this." Wow. And I told Marion later. I said. That's what this, I said, life gives you moments. And you have to decide in that moment, do you take it or not? I said, because the easy thing here would have been to say, yeah, you're right. You know, you got the experience. But no, there's a reason this happened. And I said, and we just saw it today. And I will never forget what President Reagan did. Those are life moments, Mike, that you hang on to. And a reaffirmation that what happened was really worth the time.
0: What gave you the gumption as a young man to say, wait a sec, I've got an opinion and I think this is the right move. I mean, because most people in that situation, a junior to a very senior member of whether it's a business administration, would acquiesce. Okay, Mr. Secretary of State, you're right. You've spent eight years of your life. I will back down.
1: I'll go back to, I think it's uh, because of things I learned from Senator Baker. If you believe in something, you stand up. But if, if you're wrong, then be willing to acknowledge it and move on. And I knew I wasn't wrong. When, from the first time that President Reagan saw this and said it, I think it was, and there were other instances where he's sort of saying, you know, all these people think I can't you know, make up my own mind. I'm just this Hollywood actor. I think for him, this was part of him saying, I hear you, but I know what I ought to do. I think this will make a difference. And it did. And it did. And so I think there was part of that, that the president listened to him. But I don't think Ronald Reagan ever moved away from that first day when he first saw these words and he first delivered them.
0: You said something earlier when we started about getting to know and understand the people you work with and how they'll react to things. And I think that's a great example. Um, you come back to Chattanooga as executive editor and publisher of the Chattanooga Times Free Press, not just the Free Press, the Times Free Press after they merged. Talk a little bit about how that came about and what brought you back to Chattanooga.
1: I think I may have told you so. I always wanted to be the editor of the newspaper in my hometown. I love newspapers. And I think if anybody who works for it, it's like you get the ink in your blood. I had it. Loved it. I love the deadlines and having to think on your feet and have, you know, all all the things that came with it. I never thought that opportunity was going to happen because there's a piece of this story that uh, I thought, no, great opportunity, but probably not in the cards. Uh, We wanted to come back to Chattanooga. We'd have no intention of staying in Washington, D.C. Uh, We went there. We had 12 great years, but we never intended to stay. Because goes, this is home. Home meaning we grew up in the South, we like the South. So I did one thing, Mike, I'd never done before. I made a cold call, and I said, you don't know who I am, but I want to tell you a little bit about who I am. And I said, I've always wanted to come back and be the editor of the newspaper in my hometown. He took the risk, let me do it. Uh, I remember the when I'm standing in the newsroom that first day, and here's the Times staff and the Free Press staff. And they were trying to talk about who won the war. I said, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. Nobody won a war because you all are here. It's a new newspaper. So let's get out of whether the Free Press won or the Times won. But Pam Sung, great reporter, uh, she's staying in the newsroom. So I get introduced, and Walter Hussman says, does anybody have a question? Pam raises her hand. And she says, I want to know why he's here. <laughs> See, because I was a free press guy, and I'd worked in politics, and I'd worked on Republicans. So you had a bias. And I worked for Uh, R.J. Reynolds. I'd done all these things. And so Walter turned and says, well, why don't you answer that to me? And I said, yes, sir. And I said, Pam, here's what I'll say. If in three months or so you don't know why I'm here, we'll have another conversation like we're having today with Walter. But I said, let me tell you, number one, I've always wanted to do this. Never lost sight of what it meant to be a reporter, and telling the stories of people so others can learn about them. But I said, I've learned this during my time out of newspapers for 20 years or so. You can figure out how to set up a story and really build a scenario, a context. And so if I want to go out and let's say I've got some issue with big oil, then I'm going to make the company answer all these terrible questions because this group over here has made these allegations. I accept it for fact. I said, so here's what I want to do. I don't have any problem with asking the company to have to explain what they're doing. I want to apply the same scrutiny to those who are raising the allegations. Let's tell people who supports them, where their money comes from. I said, then the reader gets to decide for themselves. But what we've done is we've stacked the deck. And I said, so my time in Washington or my time working at RJR, I said, tough issues. All I asked was, let's be fair, make your own decision, but don't accept because I don't like this, so this group over here is saying whatever I agree with is right. Let's make sure our readers know that if it's whatever this group is, who they are, what they support, who funds them, and then they can decide if the criticism they have for whatever the company is or the issue is valid or not. Let's just hold everybody to the same principle. We never had that conversation.
0: An important point of balance, which we don't always get the way news is presented today, particularly on cable news outlets, but that's for another day. A couple more questions, Tom. In your tenure at the Times Free Press and since you've been back, what has been the seminal event that you think has really been the thing that tipped the balance for Chattanooga, going from a manufacturer in town that Jobs were fleeing, people were fleeing, and now here we are, 2023, and it's a hot city. People want to come here. In your tenure, what happened or, or a series of events really took us over the top?
1: So most people are going to talk about the aquarium and all that, and it's there, but I'm going to give you a different one.
0: That's why I asked you.
1: <laughs> Figured you did. I had a CBS morning crew in Chattanooga with the event I'm going to tell you about. And they were doing a story because the Times-Free Press had been recognized as one of the newspapers was doing it right, one of the 10 in the country. And this was the day where Toyota was going to make a decision Mm. on Enterprise South. I remember that day. And the decision was not Chattanooga. Wasn't it Huntsville or Mississippi? It was Mississippi. Yeah, that's right. Tupelo. And Mississippi had done some things, and we learned from it. But Claude Ramsey was the mayor. And when that decision the attitude here is Chattanooga is never going to get there. It's a, we're always going to be second. You know, it's this defeatist attitude. And county commissioners wanted to take the property, the old volunteer ammunition property, and, and slice it up and give each one of them a piece of it to do whatever. And Claude said, no, there's still an opportunity. And we've learned some things for why Toyota said no to us. Mississippi was better organized. They had a multi-county approach. They had a piece of property that was ready to go. So what happens? Volkswagen comes on the scene, and there was another opportunity or two that didn't materialize in the interim period. But we go out and we get that site ready, and you put a camera up so people in Germany can watch what's going on. That, to me, changed the attitude in this community of we can take hold of our future and do something about it. So, the aquarium is great, all of that, fabulous. But I think that one event of saying, it's time to get out of sitting here, putting on the sackcloth, and saying, woe is us, and let's do something about it. And we did. And I think that all of a sudden changes attitude. So, then what comes? You got EPB doing the things they've done, you got an entrepreneurial piece that crops up. That to me was the catalyst, that one decision. Uh, yeah, let's just split this thing up, and you know, life will go on. No. Kept it together, and the decision was made, and it was Volkswagen. And Claude had some of his friends, county
0: commissioners, who really wanted this to happen. But he said no. He stuck by his guns. Yes, he did. We had Todd Womack on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he cited the same thing, particularly with the camera of the land being cleared. So in Germany, they could see. okay. I, I see how they're serious. Goes. They're committed to it. We're doing something different, but we learned that because Mississippi, well we had a defeat and you learn more from defeats than you do from yes, victories you do.
1: The old adage fail forward is okay
0: because you do fail at times but you fail forward because you learn from it. You don't repeat it. Exactly. I've got one more question for you before I ask you. I do want to remind our listeners you've made it this far in the podcast you're obviously interested so subscribe and uh, you'll get one every week and in- Good conversations like this that we're having with Tom Griscom. So, Tom, last question for you. I want you to think about this a little bit. What would you tell your 25-year-old self is important for a happy life?
1: Well, that's a good one. Because you can see as I pause, I'm thinking back over uh, that's been (laughs) somewhere back here in the rearview mirror, pretty far back. I think it would be these points, Mike. You ought to always have some focus or purpose in your life. You also need to be willing to realize, I may not get to where I want to go as soon as I want to get there. But if the purpose is what you really ought to be doing, you stay with it and you work to get there. But you also have to be willing to recognize, I never thought I would be involved in politics. I love covering it. You can see I never ran for office. But you got to be wise enough at that young age of 25 to realize there's a life in front of you, you work for, where you go. And one thing that I know you and I have talked about before, other than the newspaper, which I've told that story, everything else that happened to me was not necessarily expected or where I thought I would go. So you got to realize there's people out there that look at you every day. How you conduct yourself. Do you show up? When you do, are you alert? What's your appearance? Do you care about uh, how you come across? How you actually perform your work? That those things are going on. And for me, that was the Howard Baker call. I had no clue that Howard Baker, as I said earlier, really knew who I was, other than somebody who showed up when he came to Chattanooga or whatever. And I end up being asked to be press secretary which is the one event that really did change our lives. Ours, I'm talking about my family, not just me. So if I could go back and talk to my 25-year-old self, I would say really be conscious of the things you do and the things that you don't do because somebody's watching. And they're not spying on you. They just want to see how you conduct yourself when you're not on the stage, when you're not performing. How we define that. How do you conduct yourself? And then you get that phone call and you scratch your head saying, why me? Years later, which is where I am now, then I think my 25-year-old self understands why. Yeah. And then you share that with others, if you can, to help them benefit from the experiences that I was
0: fortunate and my family was fortunate to have. I really can't add anything to that. That's so well stated and great perspective. Tom, thank you for being here. Thank you, Mike. This is great. Glad you're doing this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.